Hi there. Today we have Jared Zephron on as our special guest to talk about donor conception and how he and his husband decided how to choose a donor, how their surrogacy agency went, all of the bumps along the way, all the advice he's going to give you, and how he decided to choose to leave his practice, his law practice, and then form his own agency. So there's lots and lots of roads and twists and wonderful information to share. And I hope that you can listen because it's a great story. Welcome to Donor Conception Conversations. This is the one podcast created exclusively for people who are planning to use donor conception to build their family or for people who have already built their family with donor conception. I'm your host. My name is Lisa Schumann. I'm a researcher, a therapist, and an expert in donor conception. And over my more than two decades of experience working both in fertility clinics and in my private practice, the Center for Family Building, I've met with thousands of donor-conceived individuals, children, recipients, and donors. And I've learned so much, and I'm here to teach you all that I've learned in this podcast. My guests and I will talk about everything that you need to know to have a better journey to parenthood. If it's about donor conception, we're going to talk about it. And today on this podcast, I have the pleasure of welcoming Jared, who you will meet in a minute. I'm going to tell you a little bit about him first. And Jared is an attorney, but also runs a surrogacy agency now. But way before that, he was on his own journey to have a child and now has two. His experience went well, but he wanted a more personal touch, and that desire led him to create his agency. He received his AB from Harvard University and his JD magna cum laude from NYU School of Law. He has worked for advocating LGBTQ rights and even President Obama's re-election campaign for 2012. Jared is a member of the American Bar Association's Assisted Reproductive Technology Law Committee. He lives with his husband and two daughters, Naomi and Annie, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. He loves all things food, cooking, baking, restaurants, and bakeries, and he loves travel in the U.S. and abroad. He loves tennis, local politics, and admiring other people's dogs, which I agree with you there. So that's quite an impressive resume, Jared, and I want to hear more about what you're doing with your work. But first, can we start to talk about your journey? Because I think that our listeners will be really curious about what it was like for you to embark on this really tough journey to learn everything you need to learn about donor conception and surrogacy and having children and how you and your husband, Elliot, were able to kind of connect with each other on all of the issues that needed to be discussed. So maybe you can start at the beginning. Sure. Thank you, Lisa. And thank you for having me. Um, This feels like a very full circle moment because you were a part of that journey, as Mm -hmm. as you know. I mean, I think the story for us started pretty conventionally in that we met and got married and then uh, started to explore uh, how to build our family. But at the same time, obviously, there's nothing conventional, even in 2023, about you know two men exploring how to have children. And so it involves you know that initial conversation of what are our, our paths. We can pursue adoption. We can pursue fostering uh, with the hopes of adoption or we can pursue donor conception and and surrogacy. And we had those conversations and aligned on surrogacy. And then it's, how do you choose a fertility clinic? How do you find your donor? Where do you find your donor? Um, How do you match with a surrogate? How do you go about all of these 
steps. And, you know, we're recording here in June, which is Pride Month. And I know that, you know, as the laws change in our country, the LGBTQ community is always sort of at the vanguard of figuring out what's next. Like this was not even something that a lot of us felt was possible when we were growing up, when we were coming out in our childhoods and and as as young adults. And now things are possible, but there's still those challenges. Um, so I'm, I'm happy to, to dive into any number of challenges, but I think um, just the sheer enormity, the complexity of the process, the financial costs that it places on people can seem daunting. And I think first is just having the gumption to find a way through that and to know that just like any other massive project in your life, you know, even getting to the baby, putting aside parenting is a massive project for a, a lot of LGBTQ individuals and couples. Yeah, absolutely. So how did you then start? I mean, there's so much to think about. How did you guys start? We were lucky enough to have had friends that we saw go through the process or acquaintances. And and so um, I think a lot, like a lot of folks with that personal touch point, we just started by having conversations with them. What clinic did you use? What agency did you use? Where did you find your donor? How did you go about considering these weighty questions, these ethical quandaries? You know, how did the two of you make sure that you were on the same page, that type of thing? And, you know, as, as you know, there's the Men Having Babies organization, which puts on conferences. And so we're now professionally, I'm an exhibitor at the conference, but my husband and I attended the New York conference and learned even more about the process of donor conception and surrogacy at that conference. And I think that was really the start then choosing a clinic, choosing an agency, and taking it sort of step by step. So you chose a, your clinic, and then you chose an agency for to recruit a donor. How did you decide that you wanted to use an agency? Because I'm sure a lot of people who are listening to this are going to be curious. They're faced with this decision about, do I use a clinic's donor? Do I use an agency donor? Do I just get a lot of eggs from an egg bank? How, how do I make that decision? Yeah, and this is obviously something that I, that I now advise my clients on almost every day. You know, I think we at least had the foresight and and thankfully the count, the wise counseling that if we were going to do a split cycle, which as you know, um, if you have two sperm sources and you're hoping to have uh, blastocysts at the end of the IVF funnel that are genetically linked to each of you in the hopes of children one day that are genetically linked to each you know cis male partner, then we needed to start with a, a lot of eggs. It's just unfortunate biological reality. And so um, that, that traditionally means matching with a donor who undergoes a directed retrieval for your benefit and not relying on you know, cohorts of frozen eggs, which typically are sold in, in smaller batches and don't necessarily have the same high quality results. And so we knew that and we knew that we wanted and we can get into this, I'm sure we will more. We wanted some semblance of openness in that relationship. We really wanted to avoid anonymity, uh, such as it were. Obviously, now we know there is no such thing as anonymity given 23andMe and Ancestry and all these direct-to-consumer DNA tests. But we knew that we wanted a donor that was going to be open to contact from our children way down the line. And so those two things aligned to push us towards the agency route. Clinics are a great option, but I think usually clinic pools are a little bit more limited and, 
you know, we're, we're sort of picky individuals generally and needed to wade through a lot of profiles to find, you know, the person that really spoke and resonated with us. So now you're at the agency, now you're looking at donor profiles. How did the two of you sort through that together? Did one of you say, okay, I'm going to sort through and the other person's going to be the, you know, Sunday or Monday morning quarterback and say, no, you know, what, what, what was your process like? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's really like in the practical day to day, I took the first pass at sort of going through many different databases, looking at a lot of profiles, putting them into a spreadsheet where we tried to just keep track of, you know, yeah. which donor, where did we see her? What did we like about her? That kind of thing. And then um, my husband was, was sort of the second pass and then we would try to align. And it's, it's crazy to look back now with the daughters that we have and think that it could be obviously any other way than it was. But, you know, there was another donor that we were seriously interested in, and she happened to have vacation plans to a place with active Zika cases. And we were told that we would have to wait if we wanted her to um, potentially cycle for us. And we were like, well, you know, I don't know that we want to wait another six months plus. And so let's, you know, talk about other donors as well. And, and not to say that the donor we ended up with was in any way a second choice or a fallback or anything like that. There's just, you have so many choices when you're looking through these databases that there is some serendipity about where you net out. And, and so that all of those conversations and that trip to, I think it was Mexico City or something that the other donor had ended up with us matching with um, a, a truly incredible donor. I, I still feel so fortunate that, you know, she wanted to do this, that we matched together, that the retrieval was successful, all of the things that are not a given in any respect. And I think both of us know that in our line of work, that um, at any stage of the process, there can be hurdles that um, aren't overcome. But we, we got a great result. And I mean, my daughters are about as perfect as I could possibly yeah. hope for. And I know the donor is a, a huge part of that. Fantastic. Well, you're certainly very organized, Jared, with the spreadsheets and all of that. I'm sure that there's, you know, emotionally, it probably was also helpful for you to kind of organize your thoughts in the spreadsheet. Not that everybody, just so that everybody out there knows they don't absolutely have to make a spreadsheet. But I think, <laughs> yeah. you know, for some people, it's also comforting to to do that, right? Just to get your thoughts on paper and be able to organize, you know, all these different options because there's it can be very overwhelming. And just like, I guess, dating, you know, you have to find the right person, but it also has to be the right timing, right? That's right. And, and, you know, I, sometimes I'll tell clients like there are concierge services out there that if you know exactly what you're looking for and, and you want to give them criteria and have them sort of do that legwork for you by all means. But I think for the two of us, a lot of what we were looking for were qualities that are tough to describe, like that ineffable thoughtfulness. You know, does this seem like somebody with a good head on her shoulders? Does she seemed compassionate and kind, you know, to whatever extent those qualities would be heritable. We were really parsing like those answers on those profiles to see like, you know, does this person seem like they have a good sense of humor? Generally, like, 
happy uh, dispositionally, that kind of thing. And I think, you know, to say, well, we're looking for a donor who's 5'4 you know, to 5'7 and, and brown hair and, you know, has this SAT score or whatever, you're missing, I think, a lot more of what ends up being inherited by your children. And so for us, I needed to do that work. I needed to go through the databases, read those profiles and try to get a sense of to the best of my ability, you know, who this person was, uh, their essence. And it, it's, it's really tough to describe, but I think you know it when you see it. Okay. So just to kind of back up about that, Jared, because, you know, as we all know, there are a lot of things that we can't predict, right? We all, you know, we're, none of us are exactly like our brothers or sisters, right? So I guess I'm wondering, as you were looking for a donor, were you thinking, I really like these attributes because I want to have the possibility of having them passed down to my child? Or were you thinking, well, maybe I can have these attributes because I'm, I'm going to get to know her in the future and I want this to be somebody I like and someone who I feel good about or, or both? Yeah, truthfully, I think it was more the former that at the time we were making the decision, it was mostly about, you know, what traits are likely to be passed down to our children. After we made the decision, I think our perspective has over time shifted. And this is where, and I know that you and I have talked about this, that I wish the counseling that we had received, which was you know, not from you, to, to be clear, um, at the time that we were in making this initial decision, had focused more on not just getting to baby, but baby grows up into an adult and is a donor-conceived person. And what is that relationship like between her and her donor, between us and her donor, between her and donor siblings or whatever term we're going to use for you know the other children that the donor either has herself eventually or as a result of prior retrievals. And so I think that did get lost a bit. And it's something that I try to, without overstepping uh, in, in my current role, I try to now advise people going forward, um, which is one of the reasons I think your, your podcast is so wonderful, is just mm -hmm. trying to raise those conversations as, as early as possible for people considering donor conception. But honestly, it, it wasn't about that we want to be in touch with a thoughtful person who is, you know, happy and has a good sense of humor. It was, it was just a pure, like, I hope my daughter exhibits this type of characteristic. Mm -hmm. Well, with regard to what you were suggesting, it is hard. I think, you know, I was able to meet with you one time and I think you're right. It would be so great for people to have more counseling before they move forward. But it is difficult because people are kind of rushing to have a baby and it's hard to think about that. So I do ap appreciate you raising that, Jared, because I think it's good for everybody to know that although you're rushing to have a baby, it's also, it doesn't mean you have to slow the process down, but it is good to, to get more information, have more counseling around these issues. So thank you for raising that. Of course. Yeah. When you chose the donor and you said, okay, this is the person who's traits I like and who, you know, hopefully can be passed down to my kids one day, then you were also thinking, I'd like to have someone who's open, right? Somebody who's willing to connect with us. Yeah. And we were able to meet her through the process. I mean, it was a chaperone, somewhat de-identified 45-minute Skype call, but um, that was incredibly helpful to us to have that conversation with her before, you know, she 
started the medications and and um, went into the retrieval process. And at the end of that conversation, my husband and I were 100% certain, like, this feels right. This feels great. It was, it was hugely impactful for us in that decision. And yeah, we knew that we wanted somebody who was going to be open. I think now I believe even more strongly that that's important, so much so that <laughs> there's even a principle on our website that we have a bias towards open arrangements, that children have a right to know their origins and their donor conception story and things like that. And so I, I put my own biases front and center professionally, but I think it was an evolution for us. But we knew at least that we wanted that option for our children, the ability to sort of keep that door open. And then if they choose to walk through it and have that relationship, you know, that's sort of their call. But at least we've done what we can to make sure that the pieces are in place for that ongoing relationship to be possible for them, for us. Really wonderful. And so, so thoughtful, as you're, as we're saying, going through the process can be so overwhelming and there's so much to do and so much to learn and so much to understand and so many appointments with the doctors and your lawyers and everybody that you've got to meet with to kind of stop and think, okay, well, what do I want for my child's future and how much information do I want? And can I have access in the future? And I know you and I both kind of agree that it's nice to establish that on your own, independent of, you know, agencies or clinics or other attorneys, and be able to kind of navigate that in a way that's right for you and your family. And for everybody, it's different. For you and for and Elliot together, how did you decide what was right for you in terms of openness? Like, you know, some people want to have a you know, a very close relationship with their donor and have them be in the child's life. Some people want to just access medical information when they need it. Some people want to just send holiday cards, you know. So everybody has kind of a different idea of what works for them. And then, of course, that has to match up with what the donor wants. So how did you guys get to that? I'd like to say that it's not an ongoing process, but it, it truthfully is. And I think each of us is undergoing an individual evolution and then also making sure that we're on the same page. And, um, you know, we've, we've met with counselors together to make sure that we're doing right by our daughters and to hash out where we have uh, disagreements. But I think there's just been a lot of conversations about that. And it's, it's not to say there's enough in both of our family histories that like, <laughs> it's not necessarily the case that like the ideal scenario would be a child that were genetically linked to both of us. But obviously now there is another individual in the world who is such a crucial part of our children's identity now uh, and as they grow up. And we just wanted to make sure that we were, as I said, keeping that door open. And I didn't want the relationship to be mediated either. And so um, eventually convinced Elliot that we should try to make sure that information isn't just being passed through an attorney through an agency. And so um, initially, we were not in direct touch. We knew the identity of our donor, but we didn't have her email address or phone number or anything like that. And when our oldest daughter was about one, I was like, we need to contact the agency and just, you know, gently basically write a letter to our donor suggesting that we cut them out, not for lack of a better mm -hmm. word, you know, mm -hmm. just to make sure that not 
that we are able to be in direct touch and work that out and figure out whether it's you know Christmas cards or photos and what the cadence will be to work that out directly with her and to figure out what you know we were comfortable with without relying on an agency to sort of pass on the medical information and be that intermediary and so um you know we did that and now we're in direct touch with her and it's as i said it's an evolution and a work in progress for us too and and i don't i don't our daughters have not met her yet she hasn't expressed a particular interest in meeting them yet but certainly hasn't closed the door and so i think it's just going to be an ongoing conversation that we have with them that we have with her now that we're in direct touch and i i, I don't know um uh, I guess, check back in <laughs> five, 10 years mm-hmm. and we'll, we'll see what happens. Well, it's nice that you're able to do that. You know, as we, we've discussed before, it's so nice to be able to have that because we don't know if the clinic or the agency or, you know, whomever is negotiating this contract is going to be around in 10 years. And it's very easy to get swept up you know, particularly if you have a surrogate, right? Because you have this relationship with a surrogate also. And naturally, you're, you're going to have a very close relationship with your surrogate and go through so much emotion with her. It's very easy to get kind of sidetracked and forget that, oh, yes, this donor is going to be for the rest of my child's life, even if they're not thinking about it when they're babies. For the rest of their life, this is going to be something that's important to them to kind of think about, all right, well, how am I going to prepare for that? And how can I make sure that I set this up in a way where I can always access the donor, even if the agency goes out of business or the doctor retires or whatever, that I can always have this ongoing communication. And I guess part of that means that you need to set yourself up ahead of time, which I I suspect you did when you we're looking for a donor thinking about, I want someone who I can be in touch with. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll add one little wrinkle, which is, um, and I recognize that I think we're the minority in approaching the donor selection process this way, but we didn't put physical resemblance at the top of our list in terms of how we were approaching this. And so um, both in terms of our own heritage, um, both my husband and I are basically 99% Ashkenazi Jewish. Mm-hmm. And I know that there are couples that approach that and, and, and try to find a, a donor from their own, you know, religious and ethnic background. And we didn't do that. And then, you know, beyond that, we're both pale and dark hair and um, tall. And we didn't really make any of those um, a priority either. And so I don't know Obviously, in the adoption community, there's a lot of discussion of transracial adoption and and how children fit into the family. And we ended up with a donor who um, is biracial and Dominican. And I think part of how we're trying to raise our daughters is understanding our obligations to them if they identify as Latina, if they uh, end up physically reading a certain way to the public and if they want that connection to that side of their family you know that's i think an extra sort of obligation not just to keep up touch with the donor generically but to make sure that if there is something about their dominican roots that they want to explore that we're not making that more difficult for them to do and in fact we're facilitating it if if that relationship with you know their the grandparents on through the donor the um, aunts and uncles through the donor, 
all of that family that they're at least genetically linked to, if not socially, that that's accessible to them too. And I honestly, I don't know if there's good research out there about um, transracial donor conception uh, yet in the way that I think for the adoptive community, there has been decades of this. But when I say it's an on, a work in progress and that we're evolving, there's so much for us to figure out as these girls grow up and I, we're just trying to do our best by them. You know, their ethical quandaries abound and hopefully we made decisions that work out and hopefully they will understand the decisions we made. But some of it remains to be seen. And if, if they harbor any resentment related to decisions we made, that, you know, are who they are, then we'll have to address that down the line. But, you know, I, this, this podcast will be a record of, we're just trying to do our best here. Well, you know, Jared, they're going to be angry with you for something. So you just have to wrap your mind around that. (laughs) That's true. My three-year-old's already angry with me for not giving her candy last night. So yeah, it's just starting, (laughs) just starting. Just buckle in, wait for the teenage years. That's going to be something to think about. But I do think it's a beautiful thing that you're really considering as a family because, you know, we know in adoption that that it is important to kind of then step into this idea of being a Caucasian Hispanic family rather than the children are Hispanic and the parents are Caucasian, that you're now part of this culture yourselves, just like she's or both of your girls are part of the both of those cultures. And it sounds like you're really trying to embrace that and open to it. And that's a beautiful thing. That's wonderful. Yeah, it's it's uh, it means we have to stay in an area like New York that is relatively diverse, both because we're two men raising kids and don't necessarily want to do that in a unwelcoming place personally, but also for their benefit. I mean, there's so many little decisions. Right now, my three-year-old is bilingual and speaks Spanish because we were able to put her in a Spanish-speaking daycare, but having to keep that up and make sure she doesn't lose at least that language component is is now a thing that weighs on us. So so we'll, we'll see. But I appreciate your words. You are certainly somebody who doesn't shy away from challenge, it looks like. It's a, you've taken on a lot of challenges in your life, it sounds like, and um, you've been able to move forward in every single one of them. And it's so great that you guys have been able to connect in this way and you both have been on the same page about all these really tough decisions. I really appreciate everything that you're saying. And I feel like um, for many people, all this information is going to be so helpful for them to understand. I guess I'm also wondering because there's so many, you know, beautiful outcomes that you've shared with us today. What were some of the bigger challenges that you had either along the way in the medical treatment with your agency, with your donor, with your surrogate? What do you think was most difficult or your relationship? Yeah, honestly, um, the biggest stressor for the two of us and the biggest hurdle was the pregnancy for our second daughter, for Annie. Our second surrogate had a a really harrowing pregnancy and and delivery and even postpartum period. Being remote from her and trying to make sure she was getting proper care, she had developed something called hyperemesis, an extreme form of of nausea, and and needed to be placed on a on a uh, a central IV. And honestly, I felt like her 
pregnancy care was not great. And it was a lot Mm. of the two of us calling her OB office being like, why is this not being treated more urgently? She is not getting the fluids she needs. She can't keep anything down. She's losing weight. Where is the medical care here? And so that was the biggest stress for us, um, more so than anything on the donor conception side. Honestly, like the whole process um, can, as both you and I have seen, um, can really drive a wedge in a couple, can really affect a relationship. Not just if you've experienced infertility and have been on this roller coaster of trying to conceive for many years, but even for members of the LGBTQ community, individuals and couples alike who are tackling this process, there are so many steps along the way. And each one of them, you know, there are ups and downs to it. And if, you know, the couple making those decisions and um, experiencing those hurdles, is not communicating openly and is not aligned in their feelings and the way they process their feelings even. It's a really tough thing to go through. And I, we were blessed. Both of our surrogates were incredible human beings. Our donor was great. We generally had a smooth journey. And I, I wish that for everybody out there and for all of my clients. But that second pregnancy, it was really, really tough. Uh, I mean, on our surrogate more so than on the two of us, but, um, you know, there wasn't a day that we weren't worried. And honestly, Elliot in particular, my husband still until about a month ago was still feeling like anxiety that was, that he figures was tied to just sort of learning to live in this anxious state during the pregnancy. And it just never really went away. Even after our daughter was home and clearly stable and, you know, post NICU and and all of that, there was still that lingering anxiety just from the experience that we had been through and and we weren't physically experiencing it. So that that was the toughest part. Yeah. I mean, you can develop PTSD from, you know, any sort of traumatic event. And I'm sure it kind of threw you guys quite a bit, even if you weren't carrying the pregnancy yourself, this is your child and the, and of course a surrogate who you cared cared about very deeply I'm sure so that is that's really difficult so the pregnancy was probably the hardest part it sounds like what was what else was difficult in the process what would you advise other guys who are going through this and are trying to navigate this whole process do you think there's anything in particular that they should be looking for or thinking about I think my advice generally is to to do research, but at the same time, there's a limit to how much research is going to answer questions for you. And there are so many decisions to make along the way that you just have to follow your gut instinct. I think my my biggest piece of advice for people is the, I know you're focused on getting to baby, but remember, you know, you will be a parent one day and raise this child into an adult and, you know, make sure that your decisions now are the right decisions for that much later stage, as much as you're still focused on getting to the baby, being born in the hospital and home with you in that very particular moment. But I think more globally, I think people should trust their instincts because there's a decision paralysis that if they don't trust those instincts, they're going to hit because there's just too many small decisions, not small like in the global sense, but small as it steps along the way. And they need to be considered and people need to reckon with ethical quandaries and whatever comes up 
but finding that balance between feeling comfortable that you understand your options and then um, actually being able to make a decision, that I think is one of the trickiest parts to find that sweet spot. It's going to look different for every individual. That is my biggest piece of advice is you can't research this forever because then nothing will ever happen. Right. So it's almost, it's almost um, counterintuitive because the things that people get worried about, you know, understanding the medical process and all of that, those things you're going to be kind of ushered through that. So there's not, there are fewer decisions to make, right? Biology is biology. This is the way things work. You're talking about, you know, making decisions that may feel really difficult and being able to make those decisions together is really important in a way that really speaks to you. And that's important for your family, not just kind of what's kind of looks like the right decision, but really thinking about your family. A hundred percent. And it's great practice for being a parent because everything, every little thing in parenting is a difficult decision that you need to be aligned about, you know, medical decisions, where to send your kids to school, where to live, you know, how to discipline or not discipline and which gentle parenting expert we're following these days and, you know, how to feed your kids. And it's a dizzying list of things that you need to figure out as first time parents and um, even as second time, third time parents. And as your kids grow up, it's only uh, a new thing each year. And, and so I think developing that muscle of understanding the options that are out there, doing whatever research you need to, to feel comfortable, but then following that instinct is something that if you can develop during the getting to baby phase, it'll serve you even better as a parent. That's fantastic advice, Jared. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you so much. I think this is a good place to end. So let's wind down for today. But um, before we do, maybe you can tell everybody where to reach you if people have questions for you, want to learn more about your agency. Sure. The agency is is called Brownstone Surrogacy, brown like the color, stone like the material. That's our website, brownstonesurrogacy.com. Hello at brownstonesurrogacy.com is our email. Find us on the socials at Brownstone Surrogacy. So it's all, it's all the same. <laughs> terrific. Terrific. Well, thank you so much for being here today. It's great to see you again, as always. And for those of you who are watching, please subscribe because that's how you will get notifications about all the episodes that are coming. Join our mailing list because you'll get lots of great information. And feel free to reach out to me anytime. I'm always happy to help as well. I'll see you next time.